Good morning. Uh, Back to the Gospel of John. Take out your Bibles and turn in them to John chapter 2. It's going to be in verses 1 through 12. You can find those on page 887 in the Pew Bible. Uh, Thank you for your prayers. If I look a little stiff today, it's because I am. Some of you are excited because I may not be as demonstrative and emotive today. I tweaked my back on Thursday. Um, God is gracious. Um, I have been humbled. I've learned that I'm getting old. Um, But I'm good. I've been laying in bed basically since Thursday to get to this point. And so here we are. Um, So bear with me. Um, But thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Um, Last week, Pastor Mike led us excellently through a biblical exhortation on the true nature of marriage based on the self-sacrificial, other-serving, good-seeking love of Jesus. This week, we see that Jesus at a wedding. Everything up to this point in the book has been, to some degree, introduction. Now we begin. Now Jesus officially begins his public ministry. He has just said to Nathaniel in chapter 1, verse 50, You will see greater things than these. Well, this is the beginning of those greater things. Uh, And these greater things are a further manifestation of his glory. Verse 11 tells us what this whole story is about. Two very important words for John's gospel. We're going to be looking a lot at signs. This is the first of Jesus' sign. And then glory. These signs are going to manifest his glory. And if we just don't remember, don't forget, we're going to come back to this again and again and again. This is the whole point of the book. John 20, 31 is the whole point of the book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. These signs that you may believe that he is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All right. So life is the ultimate point here. Life is our theme. Life is what we all want. Some have actually tried to argue that the whole of chapters 2 through 4, kind of this first section after the introduction, are an expounding and an unpacking of John 1, 3, where we see that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Christ has already been revealed to us as the creator. Now he is being further revealed to us as the re-creator. In the beginning, he was the giver of life. Now, in this new beginning, he is the giver of new life. And following on the tales of what we looked at in verses 35 through 51 of chapter 1, those are all about discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to really be a Christian? Well, this text really helps us to further understand that question. So I want you to be thinking as we go through this text, thinking, what's the first thing that you think when you think of discipleship? What do you generally think following Jesus is like? How do you think of the Christian life? Is it a generally sad affair or a generally glad affair? Is your uh, understanding of it generally positive or generally negative? Or ask yourself this. This one's pretty convicting and humbling to me. If someone who had never encountered Christianity before, never encountered Christ before, never heard of him, someone wandered into your home, and observed your life, heard your conversations, watched how you spend your time and your money, what would their general impression be of the Christian life? Would it be positive or negative? Simple question, summing it up. Christian, are you happy? Are you happy? Do you really believe and live as if the gospel is good news? Jesus is going to tell us in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This morning, Jesus is going to show us that he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. All right, so first impressions are very important, right? How you first introduce yourself matters. We know that Jesus is going to do some pretty amazing stuff. He's going to calm a storm. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to even raise the dead. But here we come to his very first miracle. Again, we'll see John never calls these miracles. John always calls them signs. And this is the very first one. Why? Why is, the first, why is this the first miracle of the whole of Jesus' ministry? Why is this how he chooses to introduce himself? And why wine? 
I was tempted to be annoyingly provocative and title this sermon The Glory of Wine. Um, but I thought some of you would be, would be angry about that. Um, but repetition, repetition would justify that title. Repetition tells us what a passage is about. What is repeated in this passage? Wine, six times. This passage is about wine. Why? Why wine? Why wine as the first sign? Good question. Let's see. Um, I want a big idea. I want us to talk this morning about joy. I want us to see kind of big picture that Jesus is joy. And that's what he wants to communicate to us this morning through this first sign. He is happiness. John has told us in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory. He tells us in verse 18 that no one has seen God, but Jesus has made him known. He has made him manifest. Now in our passage, we have the glory of Jesus seen. We have it made manifest. Well, what is really seen here in this first sign? I want to draw out three main things there. You have in your bulletin, this will be your outline to kind of help us structure what we're going to do. I want us to see quite simply, first, that Jesus is a relationship, and then that Jesus is joy. That's going to be kind of our main idea. And all that is because ultimately Jesus is life. Life in Jesus results in relationship with Jesus, results in joy in Jesus. And I want to argue, as we looked at in the book of Philippians, that joy is the mark of the Christian. The Christian life is supposed to be characterized and known by the great joy of following Jesus. Is that, is that what characterizes us as the followers of Jesus? I think this sign can be really, really helpful to teach us and to remind us who Jesus is and what following him is like. All right, so relationship, joy, and life. Let's read the text and see if that actually comes from the text. I will read for you in John chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 12. But pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. John writes, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. If you would, bow with me, and let's, let's begin first with, with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the gospel, the good news uh, that is communicated uh, through this word. Father, we ask especially that you would use this word before us this morning to show us uh, the glory and the beauty and the goodness of Jesus Christ, the joy that he brings and the joy that is ours, um, the, jo the joy that's there to be found in following him. Father, joy so often is not the thing that characterizes our lives. Forgive us, Father. Open our eyes. Show us Jesus. Uh, show us how good and gracious and kind he is. Um, Father, take our eyes off of our immediate circumstances and difficulties and trials and sufferings and set them on our eternal, ultimate circumstances. Set them on Jesus Christ and help us to face and live this life in light of the life to come. Uh, to face this life in light of Jesus Christ. Father, show us Christ, we ask now through your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, point number one, Jesus is relationship. Now, again, where's that coming from? Well, look at our first two verses. We are at a wedding. We're at a wedding in Cana in Galilee where Nathaniel, who we met in the previous verse, is from. But surely there is some significance to the fact that Jesus chooses the first miracle of his public ministry, the first manifestation, revelation of his glory to be at a wedding. 
Not at a funeral, not in a synagogue, not anywhere else, but at a wedding, at a party. And it would be easy to jump right to our second point here because weddings are occasions of joy. Right? As marriage continues to be increasingly minimized and redefined, we've lost some of the significance of it today. But back then, especially, weddings were a big, big deal. This was the biggest event of most people's lives. These were huge, often week-long uh, celebrations and parties. These were joyful occasions. We'll get to that. Point number two. But most obviously, weddings are about relationship. A wedding is an establishment of a new relationship. The Bible begins with a wedding in Genesis chapter 2. It ends with a wedding, as we've just seen in Revelation. Um, but uh, we see God present the first woman to the first man. Adam breaks out in song. He breaks out in joy. He celebrates. This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we read the marriage verse in Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be called one flesh. Now, remember, we've made the case. I think it's, it's you can't argue with it. John is writing his gospel. He's writing this beginning of his gospel with Genesis in the background. Remember, he has indicated that to us very clearly in chapter 1, verse 1, when he echoes the first words of the Bible. In the beginning was the word. And I don't think he's left that behind yet. Right? Often, what I read and meditate on in the word slips into what I say and write that day. Yes, I know that John is writing inspired scripture, but it's almost as if John has read Genesis 1 and 2 the morning he started writing this gospel. Because the beginning is all over his beginning. The beginning of Genesis, which we'll see, is all about life. The beginning which climaxes in a wedding, which is all about relationship. John has given us his beginning, which is all about new life, which now climaxes in a wedding, which is all about relationship, because relationship is life. There's this famous 80-year-old um, long ongoing study, it's still going on, called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And it has followed hundreds of men since the late 1930s, some of them are still living, trying to, to track and determine what makes for the happiest, most fulfilling life. You can go Google this study. Uh, the director of the study for 30 years, George Valent, says this as one of the main conclusions of the study. He says the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. This is a non-Christian understanding this, this basic biblical principle. Relationship is life. It's pretty amazing how much of modern medicine and science and psychology just ends up confirming what God's word has clearly told us thousands of years ago. God said in the beginning, Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. And then he makes the woman and he makes marriage. Now, again, the New Testament is clear on the beauty and the goodness of singleness for some. Right? Our Lord and Savior himself was single. Singleness can be a great and good thing, a gift used to leverage not for our own personal pleasure and ease and comfort, but for the kingdom. But the Bible is equally clear on the badness of solitariness. Is that a word? Single is good, solitary, bad. Because relationship is life. And God uses the marriage relationship to indicate that to us. And then throughout Scripture, God uses the marriage relationship as a picture of his relationship with his people. I just go read the book of Hosea, and it's all about that. Isaiah 54, 5 says, your maker is your husband. I love that line, your maker is your husband. And the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 31, God reveals that this new covenant is needed because his people broke the old one, though I was their husband, God says. Go read Ephesians chapter 5. Paul picks up on this. He quotes uh, Genesis 2.24, the marriage verse. And then Paul says in 5.32, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Right, so we, we, we tend to really get marriage wrong today. You know, we're not just talking about the world and its redefinition of marriage. Many Christians get marriage really, really wrong today. I guess this is why Pastor Mike's sermon was so helpful last week. I love anything that gets love right because we tend to get love so wrong. Your marriage is not ultimately about you. Your marriage is not ultimately about what you can get out of it. For most, what we call love is little more than selfishness. Right? We say, I love you, and what we really mean is, 
I love me, right? right? I love how you make me feel, right? I love how attractive you are to me. I love how good you make me look. Most love is little more than selfishness. But that's not biblical love. And that's not the point of marriage. It's not about you. It's not about what you can get out of it. It's not about how it fulfills you and makes you feel and gives you an identity. As Mike laid out, true love is seeking the good of the loved. It is putting their interests before your own. It is being, as he laid out, a sacrificial servant. Church, is that how we are operating within our marriages and our relationships? Single people who are seeking marriage, is that what you are seeking to do? Finding the person that you can covenantally commit to serving for the rest of their life. That's generally not what people are looking for and the standards that they are using to determine relationships. But that's what marriage is. And when done correctly, it's a relationship that serves as a beautiful picture of God's relationship with us. As he self-sacrificially serves us, saves us, and seeks our good. Because he knows that as the gracious and good God of the universe, he is our good. That's what we just read in Psalm 16. As the God of life, he is life. And since the only thing that really matters in life is relationship with other people, how much more than relationship with God himself. So by beginning at a wedding, I think that Jesus is signaling some of this to us. Let's get to the text. We need to look at it. It's kind of a bit humorous. Some of it is a good story. Imagine if I told you, hey, you know, I performed a wedding uh, last weekend. What would probably be the first question out of your mouth? Whose wedding was it? What if my answer was, I don't know, (laughs) right? That would be a bit strange, right? Because that's sort of the whole point of a wedding, Uh, But this is this new relationship. There's new two specific people becoming one. Well, whose wedding was this in John 2? We don't know. One of the main things you say about a wedding is not said here. Again, indicating that this specific wedding and these specific people are not the point. Jesus is the point. And so there was a wedding. And the first thing we're told is that the mother of Jesus was there. I think this is another indication of the relationship emphasis of the text. Mother is a relational term, and it's interesting that Mary is not named here. In fact, Mary is not named anywhere in this gospel. She plays almost no role in John's account. Mary shows up here unnamed at the beginning, and then the only other time she shows up is at the very end, also unnamed. She's just not a major character in the story. In verse 2, we see that Jesus was also invited to the wedding. The the construction could seem to say that maybe Jesus was invited, and then he brought the disciples along with them, uninvited. Some people think maybe that's the wine problem, right? It's the disciples were uninvited, and they come and crash the party. We don't don't know that. But it's in verse 3 that we get to that problem. This is the conflict that drives the story and that will serve as the context for the first revelation of Jesus' glory. When the, wine, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. All right, so first off, we've got, to dump, um, we've got to dump some of our own cultural baggage out here if we're going to appreciate what's going on here. Because for some of you, your first thought is good, right? Wine is bad, uh, therefore they have no wine, so this is good. <laughs> no, Jesus disagrees with you. We're going to look at the wine in detail in point two, but for now, understand that this is a big deal. This is a major problem. Uh, Many commentators and historians have have indicated that there's some evidence that this was actually a suable offense. The family of the bride could actually sue the family of the groom because this was such an embarrassment and and a social faux pas. Jewish wedding celebrations, again, could go on for a week, and it was the responsibility of the family of the groom to provide the food and the drink for that whole Weak. Running out of either was a disaster. And here, disaster looms for this family. Now, what role is Mary playing here? Why is she bringing this to Jesus? It may indicate that she has something to do with this wedding. I remember growing up, my dad did lots of weddings, and my mom was a wedding director for a lot of those weddings. First wedding I ever did, there was no wedding director. And I was like, where is my mom? Like, I need, I need my mom here at this thing. Maybe Mary is kind of doing something like that in this wedding. She seems to have some sort of role or responsibility. And this also then may indicate that this is the wedding of some relative. This might have been someone that Jesus was related to. Some even argue that this is the wedding of John the author himself. We don't know for sure. The point of the text is to not tell us. We just don't know. 
But Mary's role and Jesus' invitation to this wedding seems to imply that there's a close relationship here. But all those details are kind of left out to kind of emphasize the fact that Jesus is the point. So Mary brings this problem to him. Why does she do that? Again, we don't know exactly, but this is about to be his first miracle. He's never done this before. So it cannot be that she's like, hey, you know, Jesus will do this miracle thing. No, this is not something that she would be familiar with or used to. Um, He's the firstborn. It seems that Joseph is dead, right? Joseph never shows up in any of these stories. Um, So Joseph is out of the picture, it seems. So maybe she's been relying on her firstborn son for a while now. And that's what she does here. She turns to him to do something about this problem. But look at Jesus' response to her. Look at verse 4. Many people are bothered by this. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, children, don't try this at home. Right? This, is not a, this is not a good WWJD. What would Jesus do um, based on this verse and call your mom woman? No, don't do that. Husbands, husbands, bad idea also. So culturally and contextually for us, that would be rude, but not here. Jesus intends no disrespect here. And we know that for a fact because the only other time that Mary shows up helps us to understand and interpret what Jesus is saying here. This is the beginning, and he says, woman, who at the very end, chapter 19, verse 26, he also says woman. While he is hanging on the cross, in some of his final words, we read this. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son, not himself, but, but John. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. All right, so Jesus is clearly not disrespecting her there. He's not disrespecting her from the cross. And so he's not disrespecting her here either. No, on the cross, he's, he's loving her. He's caring for her. He's providing for her in his final moments. So don't read the address woman as we would read it today. But it is still a little bit odd. It's not what you would expect, though it's not rude. It's definitely not the normal way of addressing your mother. So why woman? I think there are two main options, both related to relationship. First, while woman may not be a term of disrespect here, it could be a term of distance to some degree. Notice that when he uses it the second time, it's because he's in a way handing off his mother uh, to John, giving her to a new relationship to this other man to care and to provide for her. Um, The following thing, the the what does this have to do with me when used elsewhere, it does carry with it kind of a bit of a mild rebuke. This could be a sort of like a a DTR, like defining the relationship. Jesus is kindly emphasizing to Mary, maybe, that she must shift from thinking of him primarily as her son to thinking of him now primarily as her Messiah and Lord. So he could gently be saying, hey, I'm not just your son, I'm the son. The son, or maybe the seed of the woman. And that's the second option of what could be going on here. Again, I can't say this definitively, but this would be where I lean if I was being honest. We've already seen John use Genesis 1. Well, we just looked at Genesis 2, maybe as the background for the wedding. Maybe this is Genesis 3. I argued way back in Genesis 3 that you could make the case that the whole Bible is an unpacking of and expounding upon Genesis 3.15. Where God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That right there is the whole story of the Bible. Waiting for the coming of this promised one, the snake crusher, the seed, the son, the seed of the woman. And now here he is. Here's his first revelation to the world, to the public. He has come and he refers to his mother as woman beginning of the story, and then hanging from the cross, end of the story. And this is her only role in John's account of the story, and the only way that Jesus addresses her in this story. Coincidence? I don't don't think that it is. She's not just the mother, and he's her son. She is that woman, and he is that seed. Their physical relationship is secondary to their spiritual relationship. He has come so that even she could be restored to relationship with God, think about it, to relationship with him. And he has come so that we could be restored to relationship with God, with him. So maybe that's some of what he's starting to subtly imply and indicate as he speaks to Mary here in this strange way. 
And all of that is because he knows that relationship is life. And in the end of verse 4, he tells her his hour has not yet come. Well, what does that mean? We'll see that phrase again and again and again in this book. First half of the book, he'll say it a bunch. My hour has not come. My hour has not come. Everything starts to pivot in chapter 12 into 13. Second half of the book, it has come. Chapter 12, verse 23, he says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he goes on to teach about his death. His hour is his death. The cross. And catch that he says that hour, his death on the cross, is also the hour that he will be glorified. That's pretty interesting. We'll we'll come back to that. But Mary seems to not be offended by whatever it is that Jesus is saying here. She seems to understand something of what Jesus is saying. And then so she says in verse 5, look at it there. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Pretty good life verse for you, church. Uh, Christian, do whatever he tells you. Because... He's the Lord, and because he is good, listen to him. Do what he says. He is first relationship. We've got to move. Point number two, Jesus is joy. Now, where is that in the text? It's in the wine. Wine is joy. Look at verse six. In a story at a wedding that doesn't even tell us who was getting married, this is an odd detail that should catch our eye. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So we're talking upwards of 180 gallons here. That's a lot of water. It's going to be a lot of wine. We're going to actually focus on this next week. John emphasizes the use of these jars for Jewish rites. In the next story, Jesus is going to pronounce judgment against the Jewish temple. Then after that, Jesus is going to have to teach the gospel to a Jewish leader. And then in chapter 4, he's going to have to teach a Samaritan woman that the day is coming when God will not be worshipped just in Jewish Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. This whole section, chapters 2, 3, and 4, you could argue is unpacking what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So chapters 2, 3, and 4, Jesus is new wine, new temple, new birth, new worship. That's what we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks. New wine, new temple, new birth, new worship. Behold, Jesus is making all things new. Jesus is doing something wonderfully and beautifully new. And it starts with his fixing what has been broken, lost, and missed by many of the Jews in his day. And the jars are indicative of that. Remember the book of Revelation and how much John, the same author, loves the number seven, right? Perfection, completion, fullness. Well, here's the number six, which is one short of that. Maybe there's significance of that. But we know what these jars were for. In Mark 7, verse 3, we read that for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Again, not the tradition of the scriptures, but the tradition of the elders. They do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Right? Jesus will then go on to rebuke them for this, calling them hypocrites and saying, you leave the commandments of God and hold on to the tradition of men. That'll be, that's one of my favorite. He then goes on in verse 15. He talks about the difference. There's nothing outside coming in that can make you clean. The problem is what is within coming out. Right? What comes out of the heart is what defiles a person. Right, so there was an external ritualistic focus in much of the religion of the day. Again, let's, let's be honest and fair. This wasn't just a Jewish problem back then, but a human problem now. Right? We still struggle with this problem very much now. And Jesus came to correct this. Your problem is not external, it's internal. Right? Your problem is not the outside, but the inside. And the jars are representative of the helplessness of the rituals of the day to do anything about our actual problem. Washing's not going to help you. Uh, Jesus must do something about our actual problem. He must transform that thing that can do nothing into something entirely different. And so in verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells them, fill the jars with water to the brim and then draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. The result, let me read 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Problem solved. Disaster 
averted. Embarrassment and shame, maybe lawsuit avoided. It was a kind and generous thing that Jesus did here for this groom and his family. But it's so much more than that. Jesus is indicating to us what he is going to do for us. And he indicates it with wine. Jesus is the good wine. And again, we cannot appreciate this if we hold on to our cultural American Christianity baggage that wine is bad. It's not. And you just can't actually read the Bible and think that it is, unless you're going to try and argue that somehow the wine in the Bible wasn't actually wine. That would be ridiculous, you would think. Well, no, many people actually try and make that argument. Um, No, it, it utterly fails. Why in verse 10 does the master of the feast say that it's the norm to serve the good wine first and then only the poor wine later? Because the people would have already had some wine, right? They will then be able to less discern the later wine's quality. Why? Because wine has alcohol in it. And scripture never blushes or apologizes about that fact. In fact, this makes many of us uncomfortable, scripture celebrates it. Throughout the Bible, wine is one of the main symbols of joy. Judaism has maintained this symbol much better than many of us have. In the Talmud, it actually says, without wine, there is no joy. So as one commentator has argued, when Mary says they have no wine, you can read it as her really saying they have no joy. And this is biblical. A couple of passages. Psalm 104.15, just jot these down and you can go look at them. Psalm 104.15 says that wine gladdens the heart of man. It's got a gladdening effect on the heart. In the parable that Jotham tells in Judges chapter 9, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, if you remember, he uses these talking trees to make his point. The olive tree speaks, and then the fig tree, and they're talking about what they provide uh, for the world that they can't leave behind. Then the vine says in verse 13, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men? Or see, wine cheers and it gladdens. Wine was also frequently used as a symbol of God's blessing poured out abundantly on his people. In Isaiah 25, 6, we read, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Isaiah 55, 1, we prayed through this recently. I love this chapter right now. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Amos 9, 11 through 15, God's going to restore his people. Verse 13, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Wine symbolizes joy. When God wants to communicate to his people the great blessing that he is going to pour out on them in the age to come, he frequently uses wine, an abundance of good, sweet, well-aged, dripping, overflowing wine to indicate that. So we should be very careful of calling evil what what God calls good. Very careful of that. And scripture is very clear that wine is good. Now, again, let's be fair. It's equally clear that drunkenness is bad. Drunkenness is to be fled and avoided at all costs. This is not a celebration of drunkenness. The way that the world uses wine is often tragic and sinful. We know that. But as we say, abuse does not negate proper use. The wonderful and beautiful gift of heterosexual married sex is one of God's greatest blessings. At the same time, sex and sexuality are one of the most tragically twisted and abused of God's good gifts. But we would never take that fact and then argue that married couples should not partake of God's wonderful gift to them. No, abuse does not negate proper use. J.C. Ryle, the holiness guy. If you've not yet read his book, Holiness, read it and be convicted. It is wonderful. It's aptly titled Holiness. Go read it. He's the holiness guy. He writes this on this passage. If our Lord Jesus Christ actually worked a miracle in order to supply wine at a marriage feast, it seems to me impossible to prove that drinking wine is sinful. It's just pretty simple. The Bible is clear. Wine is good. It is a sign of God's blessing. And Jesus picks up on that Old Testament symbol and theme, and then he just runs with it. This is what he chooses to be his first miracle. 
his first revelation of who he is and what he is going to be about. And he chooses wine. Jesus introduces himself at an occasion of great joy by providing an abundance of the substance of great joy to show us the true nature of him and the true nature of what it means to follow him. Jesus is the good wine. Jesus is joy. If they have no wine, means they have no joy. In Jesus providing them wine, again, not just wine, but the best quality of wine. Notice, oh, this is the good wine. And the great quantity of wine, again, upwards of 180 gallons. Jesus is not letting us miss. He is drowning us in the truth that he is all about joy. And that following him is and is all about joy. Later in chapter 15, he says to us clearly what he shows here to us clearly. In chapter 15, verse 1, we quote this a lot, but we don't really think about what it means. He says, I am the vine. Vine makes wine. I am the vine, you are the branches. Then in verse 11, he says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Church, this is what following Jesus is meant to be like. Joy. Jesus has come for our joy. It is in Jesus that you will find joy. I've read for you before Luther's wonderful definition of faith that comes from his introduction to the book of Romans. And he says this. I think we miss this part of faith sometimes. He says, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. And we kind of generally stop there, right? It's trusting in God's grace. Good. But he keeps going. So certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. See, we often stop at the faith, trust, confidence. But he says, no, confidence in God's gracious favor makes you happy and joyful. Christian, are you happy? Is your life somewhat characterized? Are you experiencing some degree of joy? Because Jesus specifically says that he came that you may have his joy, full joy. We looked at this a lot back in our series on Philippians, a series we finished right before 2020, a series all about joy in which we looked repeatedly at it and at Paul's repeated command of joy. That's right. He commands joy. It's part of the law. 4-4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Hey, in case you didn't catch that, again, I say rejoice. And so as we were looking at that, I defined joy as gladness. Joy is being glad. But it's specifically, it's joy is gladness because of grace. Joy is, is, is glad for grace. God has been eternally gracious and good to us in Christ, and therefore we are glad, and we are content, and we are convinced that all is well. And so I define joy like this. It is a settled and glad conviction that all is well. Even when surrounding circumstances are far from well. That's joy. That's why the song that we're about to sing at the end, the song that we're going to close with, All Must Be Well, was sort of our theme for Philippians. Pay attention to it as we sing it at the end. Through the love of God our Savior, all will be well. Free and changeless is his favor. All is well. Precious is the blood that healed us. Perfect is the grace that sealed us. Strong the hand stretched forth to heal us. All must be well. I love that progression. All is well. All will be well. All must be well because of Jesus Christ. That's joy. The settled conviction that all is well because of grace. And then the gladness that results from that conviction. So the second verse of the song says, happy still in God confiding. That's joy. Joy is to be happy in God. Joy is gladness, but it is gladness because of grace. And this is to be the distinctive mark of the Christian life. Yes, there's sorrow, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Yes, there are trials, but James says in James 1.2 that we are to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Yes, life is sometimes hard. Yes, life is sometimes bad. Yes, we are sometimes sad. But God gives us a clear, repeated command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Even in 2020? Yes. Even in pandemic? Yes. Even in loss? Yes. 
Even when you throw out your back and you're lying face down on the floor, unable to move? Yes. Why? I was working on this right before that happened. <laughs> right? And so then I was thinking, God was challenging me. God was humbling me. I was thinking through this as I was hurting a little bit. Why is that possible? All these bad things, joy in the midst of them. Why? Because of Jesus. Because circumstances don't determine joy. Or at least temporary earthly circumstances don't determine joy. Eternal, can't go as big as I'd like, eternal heavenly circumstances do. And in Christ, those circumstances are eternally good. He and they are the reality of which wine is only the shadow and the symbol. They are eternal joy. And that is what Jesus is bringing and doing. This is what he is signifying in turning the water into wine. He is saying, I am joy. Life without me is life without wine. It is life without joy. But now I have come and joy has come with me. Come and find what you have been looking for. Come and find it in me. So point number three. Very brief. Jesus is relationship. Jesus is joy. Jesus is life. Go back to the first verse, actually. We skipped something there. I want to look at it briefly. Starts off, we get another time marker. On the third day. We've noted that this is the only time in the gospel that John is so concerned to record the days and their progression. That, that there has to be a reason behind that. Well, what is it? Um, all that we have seen and read just happens on the third day. Why is that significant? I don't it's hard to say for sure. Again, I don't want to be too definitive. Some argue that it anticipates the fact that Jesus is resurrected on the third day. Uh, but John seems to make much less of an emphasis on that fact than maybe some of the synoptics do. So that doesn't maybe seem to be what he's doing here. I've argued that this is the third day after chapter 1, verse 43. And when you trace that all the way back and these different next day, next day, next days, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 19, that would then make this the seventh day. This is the third day after what we know is the fourth day. So with all the beginning of Genesis, all over the beginning of John, it seems quite possible that John is structuring the first week of Jesus' ministry to reflect the first seven days of creation, of life. These then would be the first seven days of new creation, of new life. And then he says in verse 4 that his hour has not yet come, his hour of death, his death which brings us life. The hour which we read in 1223 is also his hour to be glorified. And then, in the conclusion of this story, we read in verse 11 that glory has been what this whole thing is about. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Glory. Doxa. Uh, the, the shining or the, or the showing of God's intrinsic greatness. The, it's the, the display of his godliness. Maybe holiness is like his, his internal greatness, godness. Glory is the external outshining, the showing of that greatness. Remember chapter 1, verse 14. Again, John has says, we have seen his glory. Glory, glory is something that can be seen. Chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus makes God known. And he starts with the sign of the wine. Guys, we, we largely missed the point of miracles. I wanted to do a long section on miracles, and we're not going to do it. Miracles are never about the miracle itself. Right? The point of miracles is that they are signs. Right? They, are, they are pointers to something else. They are pointers to, yeah, Jesus didn't just come to like do some nice things for a couple of people. No, he came to save us from our sins and from hell and from eternal damnation. And so the signs, the markers, the miracles, you start with Moses, you read in Isaiah, you read through Jesus and the prophets, you'll see that these things have a specific function and purpose to confirm those who are gods, to confirm those who are going to bring God's word. Jesus is testifying, we'll see later, the signs testify to who he is, confirm his identity and he then uses these signs to teach us and to point us to truer and greater spiritual reality lots of wine at the wedding is a good thing but that's not the point it points to the greater thing the greater things that Jesus has promised in chapter 1 verse 15 and ultimately that greater thing is life this is what we all need this is what we're all looking for, though all of us are so prone to look for it in the wrong places. If the wages of sin is death and all have sinned, if we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and sin is the rejection of the God who is life itself, well, then the one thing we need is for our sins, which are death, to be dealt with so that then we can be restored to God, the God who is life. And that's why Jesus has come. 
And we began with John 10.10. Here it is again. Why did Jesus come? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Church, that's why Jesus has come. He has come so that you, his people, may have life. Not just life, like, "Eh, you know, okay. Abundant life. Joyful life. Jesus is life. Jesus is what you are looking for. Your sin ruined you. Your sin killed you. Apart from Christ, we are all of us eternally dead, separated from the God who is good, the God who is life. And that's why Jesus, who is God himself in flesh, came to solve our sin and our death problem. That's the good news. The gospel is the free and gracious offer of life in Jesus when we earned and deserved only death. The gospel is that instead of giving us what we earned, God gives us what Jesus earned. The gospel is that God has done in what God has done in Jesus to rescue us from our sins. You sin. You deserve eternal death. That's misery. That's suffering. That's pain. Jesus comes and lives in your place and dies in your place so that you can live. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And if we had any comprehension of how sinful we actually were, and I've said this before, if you knew how sinful I was, if you knew my past, everything that I've done, if you knew my thoughts and my heart, you would never listen to me. And in the same way, if I knew all yours, I wouldn't even waste my time talking to you, right? God knows all of those things. He knows all of it, much better than even we do. And yet he sends Jesus to come and take on the weight of all of that sin. And again, the point of the cross is not how bad. Here's why the passion of the Christ gets it so wrong. The point is not the physical suffering and how bad that was. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people suffered that exact same death. The point is the spiritual suffering of what it means for he who knew no sin to become sin and suffer the wrath of God for all of the sin that we have committed, all of the wrath that we deserved. If we could see that and understand how sinful we were and understand how much that offends a holy God and understands what Jesus really had to do to take on that sin and to put that sin away by suffering and dying for it, joy would be the result. We deserve death. We get life in Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is you do nothing for it except receive Except believe, turn away from your sin, give up, quit, lay down all of your attempts to save and justify and prove yourself and turn to him and trust his perfect work in your place. He came to defeat death and he came to bring life. The gospel is simply that the God who is life came to bring us new life after we had rejected him and chose death. The gospel, as I think this is what John is doing to some degree, is that our creator has become our redeemer. That's how J.I. Packer puts it. Our creator has become our redeemer. Jesus is life. And so do you see how it's all connected? He is relationship, he's joy, and he's life. And those are the things that we are all of us looking for. And it all goes together. We saw earlier that the only thing that really matters in life is relationship with other people. How much more then? Relationship with God himself. That's what Jesus came to fix. Because relationship with God, knowing him and being known by him, John 17, 3, is eternal life. And finding him and being found by him, knowing him and being known by him, it's it's pure joy. It's untouchable gladness because of what he has done and secured and finished for us. And so your invitation, uh, the call is to look at who he is. Look at just the beginning that he is starting to reveal to us here. The first thing he wants you to know is that he wants you to have abundant, good, joyful life. And we all want that. We're just not always convinced that it's found in him. And it's as we take our eyes off of him and look elsewhere that things begin to go poorly and we start to lose the joy. Stop looking elsewhere. Stop looking at self. Self equals sad. You look at self, you're going to be sad. Uh, The more you seek self and seek to find joy in the satisfaction of self, I appreciated Pastor Mike's prayer. That's what we're doing with our social media use and our entertainment. We're trying to fulfill, we're trying to satisfy, we're trying to distract all about self, self, self. Again, this is the very thing the world is telling you to do. But the more you do that, right, the more you actually find only misery. Find your joy in him. 
He is coming here very clearly and saying, I have it in abundance, and he offers it freely. Trust in him and come to him, who is relationship and who is life and who is joy. Christian, are you happy? Do you see how good and glorious Jesus is? How big and beautiful and kind and merciful and loving he is. This is what he has come to do for us. And so following him, we must demonstrate to the world, and it must start off first by understanding ourselves, um, that we are happy and joyful and that we actually believe that the gospel is good news. And then our lives reflect that by how we live and how we interact with each other and how we interact with other people. Can you sung, I love the new song that we just sang. I think it's excellent. Can you say what you just sung, that your heart has found its treasure, right? that Christ is yours forevermore? And as the song goes on to say, it says, come rejoice because his love is our reward because he's relationship, he is joy, and he is life. Pray that you will find those things only in him. Let's bow and close uh, with, with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have been very good to us uh, this day. You are always eternally good to us um, in Christ. Father, what we have, no matter what it is, is always eternally better than what we deserve if we are in Christ. And so I pray that you would use your word, use this wonderful story of of the revelation of Jesus' glory, the revelation of his joy and the abundant life that is to be found in him. Father, use that to um, grow our love for him. Uh, Give us an increasing understanding and knowledge of of who he is. Father, I pray that we would transition from understanding and believing what it is to follow him as morose and sad and difficult and um, dutiful. There will be duty and there will be difficulty. Father, help us to see the joy that is to be found in following Jesus. Help us to see that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you have made us alive together in Christ. And I pray that would define us. I pray that would be what comes out. I pray that would be what determines how we interact with the world and interact with one another. I pray that you would make us a joyful people, truly reflective of what we have in Jesus Christ, truly reflective of the infinite and eternal and good grace um, that is given to us in Jesus. Father, help us to know him and love him more. Um, I pray that we would be disciples of Jesus, joyful disciples of Jesus, who love him and love following him and love to serve him by serving others and and telling others about him. Father, help us. Um, I pray simply that you would give us a great joy in Jesus. And we ask this only in the name of Jesus. Amen.